0: Ah, there we go. Okay. (coughs) Let's open up our Bibles to Exodus chapter 12. If you're not super familiar with the Bible, Exodus is the second book of the Bible. It's towards the very beginning. The chapter numbers are the large numbers, and the verse numbers are the small numbers. So we're going to be in Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 through 32 this morning. If you remember our time together in the Word last week, we saw that Osiris is no god. Imhotep is no god. Pharaoh is no god. That's what we learned last week. Yahweh alone is the one true god of the universe, and he has purposed to set his love on his people, Israel. We also saw, as we studied the first nine plagues, that these plagues were not random, frogs here, flies there, dead cows over here, dead babies over there. no we we saw that God carefully and patiently designed these plagues to have a a kind of pattern and progression to them, and in this morning's sermon, as we study this morning's text, we're going to look at the conclusion of that progression and pattern. We're going to look at the tenth plague, the final plague, the Most severe plague, the death of all of the firstborn sons in the land, both of Israel and Egypt. If you look in verse 29 of chapter 12, you will see a summary of how this plague played out. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh Go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said, Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. This tenth plague is the fullest expression of judgment as we as we look at this pattern and progression and In order to understand how that is, you just have to understand that in the ancient world, the firstborn son was everything. It was the entire hope of your family. It was the retirement plan. It was the legacy plan, the firstborn son. Everything, all of your hopes and fears are invested in the firstborn son. Now, if you look closely at the last six chapters that we studied together, you find something, I think, that's very interesting. The first three plagues fell on everyone in the land of Egypt, the Egyptians and the Israelites alike. So you remember that was blood in the Nile, frogs, gnats. Jew and Gentile alike suffered all of these plagues. But then, as the plagues grew more severe, the Lord began to make a distinction between His people, the Israelites, and the Egyptians. So beginning with the fourth plague, the Plague of the Flies the Lord kept the plague from falling on his people, right? So when when the hail fell, it did not fall on the people of God. When the cattle were slain, the Israelites did not lose a single head. When the deep darkness fell on the land of Egypt, basically crippling everyone from being able to do anything, the Israelites had light. Now here's what's so interesting. In none of those six plagues did the Lord require Israel to do anything to protect herself? Israel did not have to say a prayer. Israel did not have to set up an altar. Israel did not have to offer up a sacrifice. The Lord just protected them. But here, in the 10th plague, the Lord requires something of his people. He says that if his people want to avoid his judgment... They must offer a sacrificial meal. The name of that sacrificial meal is called the Passover because if you observe the meal, then the angel of death will pass over your home and the judgment will not be poured out on you. So here's the question. Why here in the final plague, in the 10th plague, does God require his people to do something? Why does he require this sacrificial meal? Here's the answer, I think because this plague, the final plague, is meant to communicate something more as the apex plague than the first nine plagues combined. This tenth plague is meant to communicate something more than all of the other plagues. The first nine plagues were all meant to say something about God in relation to all of the false gods of Egypt. You remember, we saw that last week, right? Osiris is no God, Imhotep is no God, Hopi is no God, Yahweh alone is the one true God. And each of those first nine plagues was a a sort of warring on those false gods, a crushing of those false gods. But here in the 10th plague, God is not speaking of himself in relation to any of those gods. He's speaking of himself in this 10th plague in his relationship to sin. The 10th plague is the full revelation of both God's wrath and grace in relation to sin in Egypt. So, with that in mind, with that framework present, I want to give you three points. Point number one, meal. Point number two, memorial. And point number three, meal again. Are you allowed to do that? I think so. I'm going to do it. Point number three, meal again. And then, maybe if you're a note taker, you can put ellipses again. So, let me pray and ask for God's help, and then we will dive into the fullness of the text together. God, please help me and help us. We are weak, lowly beggars, but your table is full, and your mercy is abounding. And you see our need, and you've determined to satisfy our need in Christ Jesus. So help us to have eyes of faith to see him clearly this morning. Lord, unstop our ears. If there's any barrier of unbelief keeping us from receiving your son Jesus this morning, help us to be away with that. Help us to feast on Christ until we are full so that we might enjoy him forever. Amen. So point number one, meal. The heart of the Passover sacrifice is found in verse 13. Go to verse 13 with me. We read there, chapter 12, verse 13, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So, the plan is the Lord, along with his angel of death, called the Destroyer, by the way. Coolest name ever. But what he's doing is not something really to laugh about. I just can't help it. I'm an eight-year-old boy. When I hear the Destroyer, I think, wow, that's really cool. But, guys, he's he's going to be destroying. He's going to be killing. He's going to be taking life as an act of judgment. So, When he comes in judgment, the blood on the doorpost will protect your home from his judgment. Now, this is going out into all the land of Egypt, all the Israelites in their homes, all the Egyptians in their homes. This has to take place in every home if one wants to escape the wrath of God. Now, you might be thinking, well, Sean, why are the Israelites having to go through this same ritual and routine as the Egyptians? Aren't they God's special people? Aren't they God's chosen people? Aren't they his beloved? The answer to that is, yes, they are. Friends, they're not chosen because they're sinless. They're not God's holy elect people because they don't have a sin problem. They very much do. Over and over again, God tells his people, I did not choose you because you were more righteous than all the other peoples. I did not choose you because you were a better people. As a matter of fact, as we walk through the book of Exodus, you're going to see that Israel seems to have a knack for being hard-hearted and stiff-necked and rebellious against God. They are God's chosen people, but they are still sinners. I hope you realize that about yourself. You sit here in these pews. You listen to the gospel. You pray prayers. You sing hymns. You go out. You serve the world. You show that you really do belong to Christ. There may be in your little legalistic heart, in your little proud, rebellious heart, this temptation. And if it's not in you, I'm surprised because it's in me. This temptation to say, man, I'm kind of good. You know, I'm, 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 I'm. Man, thank God, you're really lucky you chose me, God, because I'm out here crushing it. I'm a good person. No, you are fallen and sinful and rebellious, just like everyone else. You deserve the wrath of God, just like everyone else. The only difference between you and those who are lost is that God has been kind to you. Friends, what we learn in the story is that all have fallen short of the glory of God. Not just the Egyptians, the Israelites too. All have. Worship the creature rather than the creator. All have loved the gifts rather than the giver. All are sinners and are by nature children of wrath. So what that means is that Israel and Egypt both need grace. Now, before we move on and look more closely at some of the details here, I want to highlight one more key gospel truth that we learn from this story. What I want you to see here is that sinners are not merely saved by God. They are also saved from God. Do you see that in this story? Do you understand what's happening here? The judgment of the 10th plague, this, this, this spilling of blood as a consequence of sin, this righteous punishment is not boiling up from the bowels of hell as a punishment from Satan. It's coming down from heaven as the righteous recompense of a holy God. When we are saved, we are not just saved by God, we are saved from God. When people die and go and spend their eternity in everlasting conscious torment in hell, they are not going to be paying the price for their sin to Satan. They're not satisfying his demands of justice. It's not because they've rebelled against a holy and righteous Satan that they must be punished. They're being punished by God for their rebellion against God. So what that means is that when any time you look in the Bible or in your life, whenever you see wrath being poured out, it's not being poured out by Satan or by demons or by powers or principalities or by governments. It is being poured out by God. If you think that salvation is merely the need to be saved from poverty or ignorance or corrupt governments or Satan or some abstract force of death out there in the universe, you have misunderstood what the Bible means when it talks about salvation. Judgment Day is the day when God judges. So I agree with one theologian who, who kind of summarizes the gospel like this. He says, We are saved by God, from God, and for God, amen. So with that gospel framework in mind, let's dig a little deeper. What we're gonna do is we're gonna walk through, there are three stipulations for this sacrifice that has to be offered to appease the wrath of God. I'm gonna sort of walk through them individually, one by one, Just to kind of show you the mechanics of them, and then I'm going to come back and I'm going to show you the deeper significance of each one in light of what we know about the Passover uh, because of Jesus. So, first we have the sacrifice. The sacrifice. In verse 4, you can look at it if you'd like. You see that the sacrificial lamb has three stipulations first, it must be a male, second, it must be a year old, third, It must be without blemish. I'm not gonna look at all three of those this morning. I wanna just draw your attention to one of those stipulations, the without blemish stipulation. What does that mean, and why does it matter? To be without blemish simply means that the lamb must not have any defects. The, The idea is pretty simple. If you're going to offer a sacrifice to a holy God as an atonement for your sins, The sacrifice has to be pure. It must be pure because of what it's representing. The spotless lamb is a symbol of a sinless creature. Lambs are not sinful or not sin, or you know, they're not sinful or non-sinful. They're symbolic in nature in this sacrifice. the sacrifice. The lamb that doesn't have an obvious deformity or issue is representing that which is pure, which is the only kind of sacrifice that can be offered up to a pure, righteous, and holy God. Uh, subpoint number two, smearing. The second thing you have to understand about this sacrifice is that it is substitutionary in nature. Look at verse 23. Verse 23 reads, For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter the houses to strike you. Here we see that God assumes that this wrath will come only upon the Egyptians because they will not by faith appropriate this sacrificial replacement, but he expects that his people will, by faith, do what he has commanded. But what you see in these verses is that the only thing that keeps the angel of death from entering into the home is the blood of the lamb that's on the doorframe. And here's the idea behind that. When you, when you kill the lamb, you're supposed to take the blood in a bowl and get a couple of branches of hyssop, and then you dip the branches in the blood and you smear it all over the door frame. And the door frame is sort of like a microcosm of the whole home representing everyone inside of it. So when the angel of the Lord goes by the house, when he sees the blood, he understands that a payment for sin has been made. The blood of the lamb was spilled so that the blood of the person doesn't have to be. That's the substitute. Now, obviously, the blood of the lamb was not to be taken literally, as a payment for sins. The author of Hebrews will later tell us something that we should have known all along, that the blood of bulls and goats cannot satisfy the price of sin. Rather, the blood is symbolic in nature. The Old Testament tells us, particularly in the book of Leviticus, that life is in the blood. So when blood is shed, we see that a life needs to be given in order to pay the price for sins. The angel comes along, he sees a life has been given, and then he moves on. The third aspect of that uh, of this offering that we must consider is the consumption aspect. Subpoint so number three, consumption. I think most of this uh, sacrifice is kind of easy to understand. If you've never read the story or heard of it, like if you're like me and you didn't grow up in the church, the first time you hear about it, it's like, oh, that's a little weird. But then you start to understand what's going on and you make sense of it and it seems to all fit together pretty easily. But, There's one thing that is pretty weird about this sacrificial meal, the fact that it is a meal. The family has to eat the lamb. They have to eat all of the lamb. If anything is left over from the lamb in the morning, the sacrifice will not be sufficient. This is such a big deal that in the text there are uh, uh, directions given for how the family is to choose a lamb that's not too big or too small. You need just the right size lamb so that you can eat it and not have too much leftover to burn in the morning. And by the way, if there is any leftover and you can't eat it all, you have to burn it. So why is it necessary to eat the sacrifice? Well, I think the answer has to do with your stomach. Modern people tend to think of the heart, the heart as the core of a person. This is... Imagery, right, analogy, you, you think about the, the, the organ in your body, we take that as a metaphor for the seat of everything that happens in a person, the, the life, the will, the emotions. There's nothing wrong with that. As a matter of fact, the Bible does use the heart as a metaphor for the, the, the core of a person. But in the ancient world, it was also very common to think of the core of the person as their stomach and bowel. Now you may be thinking, well, Sean, what about all those Bible passages that talk about the heart being the core of the person? I don't ever really see bowels. I, you know, when I read the Bible, I don't see you know the the emotions flowing up out of the bowels of the person. I don't I don't see that in my Bible. Well, it's there. You may may not see it. The work of a good translator is to make sure that what is. Being written in the original languages is comprehensible to the person reading it in their own language. And it just feels very weird for English speakers to talk about emotions flowing up out of the bowels. But in the original Greek and in much of the original Hebrew, you actually do see this. And for the KJV only's among us, right? This is your moment. This is your time to shine. The KJV actually gets it right in their more literal rendition. So for example, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 8, Paul says, For God is my witness how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. Now, do you see why the ESV didn't translate it that way? You're like, what? The bowels of Jesus Christ. Is this eschatological? I don't understand what's happening. Uh, or you could go to Philemon chapter 1, verse 2. Therefore, receive him, he who is my own bowels. Doesn't doesn't strike the ear very well in modern English. Your ESV says, he who is my own heart, right? But again, there's a reason why the original language speaks of bowels because that's how people in the ancient world thought about the core of a person. But why? Why Why would they associate the bowels with, with the core, with the depth of the human experience? Well, it's it's because of this, one of the most intimate things you can do as a human being is take something into yourself, right? Including food. Even Have you ever had anybody invade your personal space? It's, it's very awkward. I one time had a person come up and put their finger in my ear. I said, we don't know each other that well. Don't do that. One time I was messing around with a coworker and I put my finger in their nose. Not appropriate, shouldn't do that on the job, right? But there's something about any tiny part of my body going into any tiny part of your body, it feels very intimate and inappropriate, even if my wife, I'd be like, don't do that, you know. We, we eat so much that we don't actually think about how intimate of an experience this is, but the last time you got sick, you understood that. The last time you got food poisoning. Think about what happens when you eat. You take something into yourself, and then it gives you life and strength and energy, Unless what you're taking into yourself is bad or rotten or decaying. And then what happens is that what, it, what, what you take down into yourself is something that's basically trying to kill you. And what does your body do? It immediately tries to get it out of you. It, you begin to expel it from both ends. It's right? this very intimate thing that's happening that you probably just don't think about in your bowels. So I think the reason, after (laughs) big long circle, let's come all the way back, the reason why I think God has the Israelites eat this offering as a symbolic gesture of faith receiving God's grace is because what he wants for them to do is to basically feel like I'm taking God's grace down into myself. I'm feasting on God's grace and all of the life and health and energy that comes with God's grace, I'm taking it down into the very core of of my person. Next, there's a fourth element. Did I, did I say there were only going to be three? Well, if I did, I didn't mean to. There are four. The fourth element here is the bread. The final element of the sacrificial meal is not a sacrifice at all, it is a baked good. The Israelites were commanded <clears throat> to, along with the sacrificial lamb, have unleavened bread that they were to take with them on their journey, and it was to be seasoned with bitter herbs. These two stipulations are very important. The lack of leaven in the bread was meant to symbolize the fact that the the Israelites had to leave quickly. So you can see that in chapter 12, verse eight. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. You can look at verses 33 and 34. Actually, you know what, let's just go to verse 39. Verse 39. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. So no time. You know, you put leaven in, in the dough, you have to sit and let it rest and let it rise. There is no time, no leaven, we're in a rush. Then you have the bitter herbs. They were meant to symbolize what they were fleeing from. Suffering, misery, slavery. In the book of Deuteronomy, Mo- Moses will later refer to the, the, the bread of the Passover as the bread of affliction. You see the way that God loves to use the things of this world to remind us of his grace. Every time they took a bite of this bread, it was supposed to speak to them of his grace to them in their experience. So those are the elements of the Passover. But if you only understand those elements, those details, those mechanics of the Passover at at a surface level, you won't really understand the deepest meaning and significance of the Passover. In order to understand the deepest meaning and significance of Passover, especially for your life, right? That's not we're not just here to fill up our heads with Bible knowledge. We're here to receive the grace of Christ and to be transformed by it and to live in accordance with it. Well, in order to do that, you have to understand the concept of shadow and fulfillment. We've talked about this before, but to repeat myself is no problem for me and it's beneficial for you. So let's, let's, let's do a little review. Um the language of shadow and fulfillment is, is not very complicated. If, if I pointed to your shadow on the ground and I said, hey, that's the real you, you would say, no, it's not, right? You, you might say, well, the shadow is kind of like me and it comes from me and there's some sense in which when you see my shadow, it points to the reality of my actual existence. Nevertheless, that shadow is not me. In the same way, this sacrificial meal called the Passover, though it is real and it is important, it is not the ultimate reality that God has in mind. Everything about this Passover meal is meant to be a shadow pointing forward to the ultimate reality of Jesus, the final sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice, the spotless sacrifice, the true Lamb of God. Let me show you what I mean. Let's walk back through each one of these points and see how Jesus is the fulfillment of their shadow. So, sub sub point, (laughs) you can do this however you want in your notes. The sacrifice. Listen to these words from 1 Peter chapter 1, and you tell me if Peter isn't thinking about the Passover when he writes them. Speaking to the church, he says, you were ransomed, that word ransom means to pay the price to free a slave. You already see the connection, right? You were ransomed from the, your feudal ways, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. Peter, in his mind and his heart, knows Jesus is the fulfillment of the sacrificial Lamb, But you can't stop there. You can't just say, oh, it's good enough that I understand that Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. You also have to understand the reason why a perfect sacrifice had to be made. A perfect sacrifice had to be made because we are sinners. The sacrifice is paying the price for something. That without blemish must pay the price for those with blemish. That's you, that's me. Our souls are stained by sin. Friends, the whole world is trying to tell us that we are fine just the way we are. That is the, one of the gospel messages of our age. Don't ever change, right? Hey, you know, just be you, girl. Don't ever change. Or, you know, hey, don't let her do that to you. Just stay exactly the way you are. We're told that if anyone ever tells us that we need to adjust or improve or be sanctified, that they're just haters. But the fact of the matter is that this Passover sacrifice shows us that we are not acceptable to God as we are. Is that one of the most offensive things you can ever say to anyone in our day and age? You are not acceptable to God just the way you are. We sang this in our hymn earlier, did we not? Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here may view its nature rightly, here its guilt may estimate, mark the sacrifice appointed. Notice, it had to be a spotless lamb. See who bears the awful load. Tis the word the Lord's anointed, son of man and son of God. Such a significant sacrifice had to be made to save us because our sin is so significant in his sight. Listen, if you think you can stand before a holy and righteous God just as you are, you you don't even understand your own experience with other human beings in this life. You're not even acceptable to other sinners just the way you are. That's why we tell, don't let them change you. Don't let them try to tell you that you're not fine. Why do we say that to each other? Because every time we look out at other sinners, we judge them. We say, you're not good enough. You're not smart enough. You're not holy enough. You are not enough. Well, if that's true with other fallen human beings, how much truer is that of our holy and righteous God who actually sees us for who we are? What we need most is not a God who will affirm us just as we are pretending that we're pure when we're not. What we need is a God who will point out our sins, who will point out our stains, who will point out our impurities, and then give us himself. See, everyone else in your life who's pointing out your sin and pointing out your flaws, what can they do to fix that? What can they do to change that? What can they do to to make you whole, to make you new, to make you better? They can't really do anything for you. But Jesus can because he really is spotless. He really is pure. He really is the God of the universe. He really can come and make us new by wiping away all of our sins, sins with his holy perfection. You've probably been in a church before where you've heard someone say, come as you are. Isn't that a pretty typical uh, gospel call, offering call? Come as you are. That statement is true, but it must never be made in a vacuum. The gospel does not just say, come as you are. The gospel says, come as you are, but just know that the only reason that you can come as you are is because Jesus came as he was. Sinless, perfect, spotless. And just so you know, when you come to Jesus as you are, he has determined not only to save you, not just to get you away from the consequences of your sin, but to make you like himself, to make you spotless. You're all blemished. You won't be on the last day. The rest of your life, you're gonna you're gonna spend the... <laughs> guys, it gets so old. The battle of sanctification. Just every time you turn around, you look at his sinless spotless perfection and it's like a mirror when you look into it you see another another point of sin and stain on your own soul and you go I'm so tired of this fight but you're going to fight it and you're going to fight it all the way till you get home and then one day you're going to be made new and you're going to be exactly like your savior I can keep going but I won't sub sub point number two smearing S- or we could say substitute that probably would have been better <laughs> just something about the word smear you know Anybody want a peanut butter sandwich? Okay. The offering was never meant to actually pay for sins. This this Passover lamb, we talked about that. It's meant to be a symbol pointing to the one whose blood really could pay for the sins. But you you have to understand that Jesus' blood was not a symbolic payment. Jesus' blood was not a symbolic payment. It was an actual payment the, the demands of God's righteous decrees say that if a human sins, human blood must be spilled to pay the price for human sins. There's a problem with that. Your blood is not righteous. Your blood representing your life and you, you don't have any of it. Sin has ruined it. You're dead in your sins. So how can a person who's dead in sin pay the price for their life? They can't. But Jesus comes along and as fully God and fully man, He is able to offer up the blood of a human being, but because He's perfect, that blood is in no way stained, and therefore it can serve as the perfect sacrifice. You, brothers and sisters, should have been the one to shed your blood. You understand that? Have you ever been let off of something that you knew you were re- like you really were guilty and you should have paid the price for? Well, this is like that, but like multiplied times. I don't even know. Just an exponential number that just gets bigger every time you look at it. Not only should you have paid the price for your sin, but Christ should have in no way paid the price for your sin. He was perfect. He was righteous. He always walked according to the will of his Father, and yet he stepped in and gave his life for you. Can you think of a greater love than that? I can't. Point number three, consumption. At one point, Jesus had a couple thousand followers during his earthly ministry. He lost them all in a heartbeat. Here's what he said to lose all of his followers. You must eat my flesh and drink my blood. They did not understand Jesus. They thought he was teaching cannibalism Later, on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he sat around the table with his disciples and he was observing the Passover meal, the meal prescribed right here in Exodus chapter 12. And this is what he told his disciples. He said, he held up the bread and he said, take and eat for this is my body. In both of those instances, and there are a couple of other ones as well, here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I am the true Passover meal. The lamb was pointing to me. The bread was pointing to me. It was all pointing to me. In the same way that the Israelites had to feast on the sacrifice in order to be spared the wrath of God, you must feast on Christ by faith in order to be spared from the wrath of God. You must feast on him. This imagery is significant. You cannot just look at Christ. You cannot just smell him. You cannot just touch him. You cannot just observe him tangentially with some of your senses and appropriate his, his sacrifice by faith. You have to take him down into the core of your being. Friends, you live in the Bible Belt it's very important that you understand what I'm saying right now. You live in a world where people are trying to superficially appropriate Jesus and His sacrifice for their lives, and it will not work. It is not sufficient. You cannot take your life and add a little bit of morality, a little bit of Christianity, and think that you have taken hold of Jesus. Russell Berger just had an interview with uh, a, an unsaved man from the cross, excuse me from the CrossFit world, and as I was watching. This guy seemed like he was saying all these really Christian things. He was like, you know, murdering babies is bad and, you know, limited government and all these other things that are downstream from a Christian worldview. And at one point he said, you know, man, I just think Christianity is true. Now, I don't, I, I don't believe it. I'm not a believer, but I think it's true. I thought it was astounding that he could say that. But should I have been astounded? I mean, that is the vast majority of people that we come into contact with in the Christian South, People who say, yes, I understand, and yes, that makes sense, and actually the more I look at it, the more it does make sense of the world. But they don't feast on Christ. They don't take him down into themselves. They won't be changed by him. I had an evangelistic meal last week with a guy who was talking about sin, and he was, maybe I should marry this woman, but maybe I shouldn't. I'm not sure she's a Christian. I think I'm a Christian. And I said, let me just stop you right there. Let me ask you a question would you say that Jesus is Lord of your life? And he said, I don't know. You see, he hasn't feasted on Christ. He hasn't taken Christ down into himself. When you take Christ down into yourself, he changes everything about, oh, you'll know. If you think you can have an encounter with Christ, feast on Christ, take Christ down into yourself and just be the same person that you were before, no, you can't. The way you spend your money is gonna change, the way you talk is gonna change, your affections are gonna change, the entertainment you consume is gonna change, the way you treat your spouse is gonna change, the way you raise your children is gonna change. Everything in your life is gonna change because you've been changed from the inside out. Take Christ and feast on him. We're going to talk more about the Lord's Supper here in a minute, but have you ever noticed? Of course you haven't. I haven't. I didn't until this week. Why do we have to actually eat the bread? Why do we actually have to eat the wine? I mean, couldn't the pastor who offers us the Lord's Supper just say, all right, now it's it's time to observe the Lord's Supper and hold up the bread and be like, you see, this bread is a symbol for Christ, and then he puts it back down again. Hold up the wine. This is his blood shed for you. Put the cup back down again. Are you guys understanding the metaphor? And then you just sort of move on. No. Jesus says you have to take and eat. Every time you observe the Lord's Supper, you are being reminded that if you are trying to follow Jesus without taking him down into the core of yourself, you are not following Jesus. More on that in a minute. Point number two. I bet you didn't think we were going to get there. Point number two, Memorial. Memorial. Look at verse 14. This day, that's the day of the Passover, shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. So what we see here is that this initial sacrificial meal was not intended to be a one-time thing. God commanded the people of Israel to continue to celebrate this Passover meal annually along with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. On top of that, this meal actually became the demarcation of time for Israel as a people henceforth. It says, this Passover month shall be for you the beginning of months. What that means is, this is going to be your new January. So, What this morning's text shows us is that the Passover became a holy day for Israel. The Passover became a holy day for Israel. Now, I know the concept of holy days may feel foreign to us, but it shouldn't because we actually still celebrate holy days. We've just uh, dropped the Y, added an I, and pushed the two words together to create the word Holiday. holiday. That's right. Same thing, holiday, holy day. Now, you may be thinking, well, Sean, yeah, but, I mean, you know, ours is for, like, George Washington and, you know, MLK Day and stuff like that. The old holy days, those were, like, loaded with, like, religious significance, and I would just say, ah, but they still are. They still are. Every day that a society, a culture, a people set apart, any day that they used to sort of shape their experience of time, is a fundamentally religious commitment but I just don't have time to talk all about that this morning in the old testament a series of holy days and feasts and holy seasons they all come together to compose something called a liturgical calendar and the purpose of a liturgical calendar was to pattern your experience of time in accordance with God and his grace you get that? The purpose of a liturgical calendar is to pattern your experience of time in accordance with God and his grace. For most people, their experience of time is patterned by work and then like the little bit of time they don't have to be at work, right? That's kind of the, the, the everything. That's the sun and the constellation of their time. But the purpose of this was to always be reminded of God's grace. Every purpose, uh, every holiday, every season, every feast, looking back on God and and His grace. Now, the Old Testament, because of this, was full of holy days. One of the main ones was the Passover. There were other days, the Day of Atonement, and so on and so forth. You should know that in the New Testament, there is no liturgical calendar other than the Lord's Day. The liturgical calendar goes from Sunday to Sunday. So... As our Catholic friends uh, begin to celebrate Lent and as they're gonna carry out their celebration for the next 30 days, you should know that they are certainly free to do so. The Bible says that the celebration of holy days is a matter of conscience. Uh, Believers can disagree about that, but you should know if you're a Protestant, one of the things about being a Protestant is we like to just do what the Bible tells us to do, not what church history or tradition tells us to do. And Lent is something that has been fabricated and it does does not come from the Bible. So you are free to do it if you like. If you say, well, Sean, you know, there's just something about getting into this rhythm. It's kind of like Advent, just getting into the rhythm. It just reminds me of grace. You're free to do that. But I also want to challenge you and I want to try to calibrate your conscience a little bit to consider the fact that really dangerous things begin to happen when when men begin to invent holy days and establish liturgical calendars that haven't been invented by God, all kinds of problems and conflicts and unity issues can arise in the church. So it's probably better just to observe the holy days that the Lord has appointed explicitly in his word. Moving on. The idea behind this Passover uh, holy day was very simple. Every year, God wanted his people to remember that he saved them from Egypt. That was the grace they were to remember. In the same way that you have a special day to remember your marriage or your birthday or maybe your church anniversary, this was the holy day that God appointed for his people to remember his wrath and grace as they were expressed in Egypt. You know, the more you read the Bible, the more you see how big God is on reminders, God is huge on putting reminders in for his people. Now this Passover holy day was a once a year reminder. I think it's significant that when the liturgical calendar of the New Testament is established, it goes from week to week. Because I think we need frequent reminders, do we not, brothers and sisters? We are so prone to forget God's grace. We need frequent reminders because if we don't have them, we will forget. We are so quick to to forget what matters most. We will look back on our sin and our slavery and our suffering and our bitterness and we might begin to think that really it wasn't that bad after all. You know, the Israelites, once they were rescued and they were in the desert and they were eating the manna, they were like, man, back in Egypt, they had leeks and garlic and like Korean barbecue. No, they didn't say that. But I mean, they they're just like, oh man, Egypt, maybe it wasn't it wasn't as bad as we remember. And you know what that's like because you do the same thing. Maybe I'll get back together with this person because you know, I think he wasn't really as abusive as I as I recall. Or maybe maybe I can go back and have another drink. My addiction wasn't really as you know, I think maybe we might have blown this out of proportion. I think my addiction wasn't as bad as I remember. Maybe I, maybe I don't need that filter on my computer. Maybe my porn problem wasn't as bad as I remember it being. Maybe I can really have it under control this time. So what does God do? He, establish, he establishes reminders for his people. You were slaves. You were suffering. The suffering was terrible. You were under bondage, and I saved you from that. Don't go back. Every Sunday morning, when we gather as a church, that is a note that we are sounding. Sin is terrible. You were lost. You were dead. You were enslaved. Don't forget that. Don't go back to it. God's grace is better than anything that the world has to offer you. It's sometimes said that you should never look back, you should just be forward oriented. Maybe you've had somebody tell you something like forget your past, focus on the future. But looking back is actually really helpful as long as what you are looking back on is grace. That's what this holy day is all about. Brothers and sisters, this is one of the reasons why we should love sharing our testimonies. If you are a visitor of our church, you have probably been taken out to lunch or had over for dinner, and one of the first things that has happened is somebody's probably said, hey, can you share your testimony? or let me tell you my testimony, we do that because we love telling the story of God's grace over and over and over again, and we're gonna tell it to anyone who will listen. It should just feel very normal for you when you get together with other believers, and very often when you get together with unbelievers, for you to wanna talk about how God saved you from his wrath by his grace. Now, before we get to point three, quickly look at verses 26 and 27. And when your children say to you, What do you mean by the service? So when you're celebrating the Passover in the years to come, what do you mean by this? You shall say, It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel and Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. What I want you to see in these verses is that the meaning of the symbol needs to be explained the meaning of the symbol. If you want to rightly understand the symbol, it needs to be explained. Sometimes we think that we'll just throw out a symbol and everyone will look at that symbol and they will all intuitively understand the same thing of it that we do, and that is just not true. What human beings have demonstrated, and especially throughout church history, what we have seen is that, is that human beings are very prone to take symbols, even divine symbols, and load them with all kinds of false and inaccurate and superstitious meaning. This is why when we read the Bible, we don't just walk away. We read it and then explain it, right? This is why when we do the Lord's Supper, I don't just go, all right, here's a piece of bread, here's some wine, take your seat, eat it, and then we'll go. I usually have like a little sermonette to go with it. Why? Because I'm trying to explain the symbol. I wanna make sure that the true meaning is protected by my words of explanation. More on that in a bit. Moving on to point three meal ellipses again in verse 14 in verse 17 if if you're like a Bible marker upper you can just make your notes 14, 17 verse 24 God tells the people that they are supposed to celebrate this Passover day forever forever that's a bit of a problem for us don't you think? Uh, do we celebrate the Passover? You guys getting together, slaughtering a lamb, putting blood on your door, making sure you eat all of the animal, including the entrails, and then burning the the leftover? No, we're not doing that. Why? Well, it's because Jesus has fulfilled the Passover, and now we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Remember shadow and fulfillment. The shadow was the Passover. The fulfillment is the Lord's Supper. That is, we eat a meal of bread and wine that reminds us of Jesus, the true and better Passover lamb who gave his body and blood to save us. Now, going back to that point about sinful human beings distorting divine symbols of grace, they load them up with all kinds of false, inaccurate, and superstitious meaning. Well, we've seen that with the Lord's Supper all throughout church history. All kinds of weird doctrines and traditions have arisen regarding the Lord's Supper, none of them rooted and grounded in the Scriptures. Let me just give you one example. Before you take the Lord's Supper, you've probably been told that you should examine yourself to see if, if there's any sin in your life. And if there is any sin in your life, you should make sure you take care of that before you come and partake of the Lord's Supper. That is not taught in the Scriptures. That's not in the Bible. The the passage that we read earlier in our service together First Corinthians chapter eleven is usually where people try to go to say that, to argue that. That's not what this passage is about. When it says, do not eat of the of the bread or drink of the wine in such a way that brings judgment, it's speaking corporately of how we as a church are observing the Lord's Supper. It does not mean that you, if you have some hidden sin in your life that you haven't really dealt with, shouldn't come to the Lord's Supper. If you're struggling with sin, you must come to the Lord's Supper and be reminded of God's wrath and grace. So that's just one example. And if you're like, well, Sean, I've heard that my whole life. Ah, we could, I'll sh- if you want, I'll do the exegesis later and I'll show you, but... You don't need me to do that. I would just encourage you to just read this slowly, thoughtfully, and carefully, and ask yourself uh, which of those two views makes the most sense of the text. Another weird thing that has happened to the Lord's Supper is the doctrine of transubstantiation. This came from the medieval Roman Catholic Church. The development of this doctrine is long and varied and complex, but the the heart of the matter is basically that the Lord's Supper kind of became this like magic trick Uh, You know, the priest would stand up as the magician and he would say the holy words in Latin, of course, because that kind of came to be viewed as some divine language in the same way that Muslims view Arabic as a divine language, even though the Bible doesn't say anything like that. He would stand up with the bread and he would say the Latin thing and, and then supposedly the bread would literally turn into the physical body of Christ and the, the wine would turn into the literal bl- blood of Christ. You know, is it O negative or I don't know, but it's it's literally turning into that. And then because of the way the church was structured in the ancient world, most of the time the Lord's Supper would only be held once a year and even then you probably, even if you were a catechized, baptized member of the church, which everyone was back then because you were born into it, essentially, uh, you might not be able to partake. Actually, you probably would not have been able to partake. What, what very often happened is that people would just try to get somewhere near the church building, get up in the rafters, climb on top of the roof, crawl up under the floor, and somehow you would try to just get a line of sight so you could see the priest when he would do his magic trick, and you would feel like somehow, some way, just by observing that, you would receive God's grace and have been forgiven of your sins. Friends, there's nothing in the Bible that teaches us that when we partake of the Lord's Supper, the bread actually turns into the body of Christ or that the the, blood actually, uh, the wine actually turns into the blood. All of the language here in 1 Corinthians 11 and in Jesus' teaching when he says, this is my body, all of that is symbolic in nature. Right? He's saying, I want you when you drink this wine to think of my blood. I want you when you partake of this bread to think of my body that was broken for you. Jesus is no more actually, physically, literally bred than he is actually, physically, literally a door. Right? You remember, Jesus says, I am the gate, I am the door, I am this. All of that was symbolic in nature. Then you have, so that was transubstantiation. Then you have consubstantiation, and my favorite way to explain that is the way my pastor f- friend, his daughter, went to a Lutheran school uh, she came out of school and he said, what did you learn about today? And she said, we learned about consubstantiation. And he said, well, what does that mean? And she said, well, the Lutherans say it's different than transubstantiation, but it really isn't. Moving on. Then you have the Reformed, you'll see this in a lot of Presbyterian churches, the spiritual presence of the bread. They say, well, no, it doesn't actually, literally turn into these things, but somehow Christ is spiritually present in the elements. This, too, has no real basis and grounding in Scripture. I think where they try to go is in 1 Corinthians 11 and other places where where Jesus promises to be with his people as they partake of the Lord's Supper. And that is true. Whenever we partake of the Lord's Supper, when we have a family meal, our dad is here with us, right? The head is present with the body, but not in some weird, magical way in the actual elements, no, he's here with us in the same way that he's here with us every time we come together as his body and exercise his authority on earth. The view that we hold in this church that I think Baptists rightly hold, Zwingli, the, the reformer, held, and I think it's the one that makes most sense of the biblical testimony is called the memorial view. That is, when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we are celebrating the memory We are. God is reminding us. He's causing us to remember what Jesus did on the cross two thousand years ago. And someone might come along and say, "There's no grace in that." To which I would just say, "Have you read your Bibles?" I mean, I think in verse fourteen it is. Look in verse fourteen, real quick. Look there. This day shall be for you a memorial day. A memorial day. Even the Passover did not have any weird, mystical, magical elements to it. God was just saying, I want you to do this every year so that at least once a year, you'll remember what happened. And that's what we do with the Lord's Supper. Every time we come and partake, we do so to remember. To remember the gospel. The gospel that says that a life must be given, a sacrifice must be paid. And by God's grace, the life that is given does not have to be yours. By God's grace, Jesus gave his life in your place. I I don't think I can say it better than this pastor, Andrew Wilson. He says, Israel sacrificed the Passover lamb so as to not sacrifice their firstborn sons. But God in the final Passover, the Jesus Passover, sacrificed both his son and the lamb because his son was the lamb. Look at verse 27. The very, very end of verse 27, it says, after after the recounting of all this, and the people bowed their heads in worship. Friends, this must be the right result of everything that we've talked about today. Like I said earlier, the goal of this service is not to fill your head with all kinds of Bible knowledge and cool terms and shadow and fulfillment, and then you're gonna go out and talk with your coworkers or your Christian friends or in your small group or with your spouse or your kids and and just show how much you know about God. That's not what we're doing here when we feast on Christ in his word together as one body, what we're supposed to do and respond is worship. It's been said by many, and I think it's accurate, orthodoxy, right belief, uh, must lead to orthopraxy, right response, right practice. You can believe all the right things, but if you don't respond properly in worship, not just on Sunday morning, but in all of your life, then you might not believe what you think you do. And so we are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper here together today. So if you are leading us in the service of the Lord's Supper, can you please come forward and bring the elements down to the table? As they do that, there is one element of the Passover that I did not tell you about. It's the element of unity, and I'm going to talk to you about that as we prepare to partake together. In verse 3 we see that this meal is observed by all of the congregation. Look at verse 3. It says, Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. Now this word congregation is significant. It seems very common to you because we use it all the time, but you should know that this is the first time this word is used in the Bible. Don't focus on them, focus on me. Did you hear what I just said? This word, congregation, is this is the first time it's used anywhere in the Bible, right here in Exodus 12, as we are celebrating the Passover, as they are celebrating the Passover for the first time. Why is that so significant? It's because there's something about this meal that officially makes Israel one. When everyone by faith partakes of the sacrifice, they are made one by their faith. And the same thing is true of us as we partake of the Lord's Supper. Speaking of this theme later in First Corinthians ten, Paul says this because there is one bread, the Passover bread, his body, we who are many are one body, because We all partake of the one bread. If you think, Sean, what makes us one? Did you hear what Russell said earlier as he was leading us, as he was opening us up uh, in our service leading this morning? He said there there are people gathered all around the city, the state, the country, even the world who are gathering around all kinds of things that make them one. A shared love of anime or jujitsu or football or politics. And even in churches, that can be the case. Our shared love of homeschooling, or our shared love of this particular teacher, or our shared love of this particular tradition, all of that is false. They're all, all that's idols, idol worship, idolatry, all of it. What the Bible says is what makes us one as a body of Christ is when we all feast on Christ. So if you have feasted on Christ, then you are a part of the body, and you are welcome to partake of the Lord's Supper, If you are here this morning and you are not a baptized member of a gospel-preaching, Bible-believing church, it is precisely because we love you that we do not want you to partake of these elements. Maybe you've grown up in an environment where you've always, you know, if if we're doing the Lord's Supper, I just sort of walk forward and I do it. Friends, this is a meal for those who love Christ, who have trusted in Christ, who believe in Christ. And as you stay back in your seat as we partake, I just want to encourage you to consider what it would look like for you to trust Christ, to feast on Christ, to take him into yourself so that you might be made one with us as a body. Any particular